Well, I got a little news for you. The real reason we built the warehouse back there was to begin the construction of an ark. And uh, if you guys would start bringing next week two animals, each kind, and uh, we should be getting close. <laughs> you got a couple of cats you want to get rid of? Wow. I hide, I hide your plane like three times on the way here, and I think I went as fast as 25 miles an hour one time. Man, in San Diego, when we have our first rain of the year like this, 80, 100 car wrecks all over the county because the oil, and we just never get rain, and so it's like an ice capade out there. And, uh, and so we, we wouldn't have anybody show up tonight. Um, but uh, there's a... The real committed crowd is here. Let's just say that. Well, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14 to 23 tonight, understanding sanctification. And Lord, we now ask you to open our hearts to hear from you all that your spirit is saying to the church this evening. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Well, in verse 14, Paul says for the second time in this letter, Remind them of these things. Charge them before the Lord not to strive about words to no profit, to the ruin of the hearers. He said in chapter 1, verse 6, Therefore I remind you to stir up spiritual gifts. There's that saying that if it's new, it's what? Not true. <laughs> and if it's true, it's probably not new. And so if you're coming to church and you've been a Christian for decades and wanting to hear a new doctrine or a new teaching, um, that's scary because uh, it shouldn't be that way. Or if somebody has some new insight out of the Greek that no Greek scholar has seen in the last 2,000 years, and all of a sudden you're seeing it for the first time, that's a little scary. I know when I think I see something out of the Greek, I go back and reference commentaries, you know, back to at least two or 300 years at least to see if they had come up with similar thoughts. And, um, and so Paul here is telling Timothy, uh, you don't need new stuff, but you have forgotten some important stuff. Peter saw this really as his entire ministry. In Second Peter, his last letter that he wrote, in verse 12 to 15, for this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth, yet I think it's right, as long as I am in this tent, to stir up you by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Moreover, I be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things. There it is again, a reminder of these things after my decease. Do we have verses to pop up there, Mike? Here, okay, a little technical glitch. Well, charging them, he says, before the Lord. So once again, Paul is the commander. He did this in the first letter, the same thing, telling Timothy that uh, he's got to confront these guys. He just can't leave them uh, without pressure to say you're wrong. Sometimes that's all you got to do. You don't really have to have a great debate. <laughs> you don't have to necessarily have the answer. You just say, say, no, that's wrong. That's not sound doctrine. That's not something our pastor would teach. That's not something I've ever heard in all my years. And, and so I, 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 I reject that. Sometimes that's enough to pacify people from stopping to listen to such people. But remember in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3 through 4, he says, I urge you when I went to Macedonia to remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies, which cause disputes rather than godly edification, which is in faith. So I, I told you that in some cases, they're, they're teaching bad doctrine. In some situation, they're teaching in detail stuff that was never meant to be taught in detail. 
Some of these are trying to take truths that are in other religions, are in other poetry, and say, look, it's a similar truth here, which is interesting if you're trivia buff. Um, you know, 85% of all religions are the same. Um, and really, it's 15% that's different. And then amongst Christian groups and even false Christian groups, we still are about 98% the same. But how many drops of cyanide on your child's plate do you need before you won't let your child eat that plate? Just one drop, right? I mean, in the same way, Satan doesn't have to come up with something new. Just a slight deviation can give people a completely different concept of Jesus. You know, you have the Mormons saying, uh, oh, Jesus used to be a man on another planet, and so his brother on that planet, Koloth, um, was Lucifer, and they both had a bidding war on who would get planet Earth, and Jesus' ideas were better, and so his brother Lucifer is out to get him. And one day, if you're a good Mormon, you'll be a god on your own planet. And you say, well, you know what? I, I've been to Bible studies with Mormons and as they use our Bible, and it's pretty close to what Christians. I said, yeah, they're, they're not going to come up with some of their crazy stuff out of the Book of Mormon or the Pearl of Date Great Price <coughs> at that time. But no, it is a different Jesus. It's a different um, Goal, really. I mean, in, in their doctrine, again, everybody goes to heaven. It's just which <coughs> level of heaven you go to. And then on top of that, um, Jesus is just a mere man who became a God, like you're just a mere man that become a God. Uh, it's, it's serious, serious, serious heresy. And so he tells Timothy in verse 15, you need to buck up and get serious about being a student in God's word. He says in verse 15, be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So Timothy, you're not having answers that at this point in your leadership as a pastor, you probably should have the answers to. Boy, this verse 15, I could go off and preach a whole hour on it. I won't because there's a Another verse in chapter 3 that I want to expound on the importance of God's word. I remember that place where Jesus was debating the Sadducees. The Sadducees didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in a resurrection from the dead. They only believed that their doctrine was to come from the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. And so they came to Jesus and they made up this elaborate hypothetical scenario of if the guy died and his wife was given to his brother, as the law says, and then that God brother died and it went to seven different brothers. When the resurrection, whose wife would she be? And Jesus says, there is no marriage in heaven, number one. But then he says, the reason you guys are faltering in false doctrine is one, you don't really believe the scripture. You don't really believe it is the literal, historically accurate word of God. And they didn't. They were very liberal. Secondly, you don't believe the scripture. Secondly, you don't believe the power of God. And he says, have you not read when the Lord spoke to Moses at the burning bush? He says, I am, present tense, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That was it. It exploded their argument. Now, you, you, all it was was a present tense. When they read it, they didn't read it closely because they didn't believe the Bible is the Bible, and they didn't believe the power of God. And so it was just sort of a general truth out there. Uh, you know, let's just all get together on generalized truth of what it is to be a Jew. And Jesus says, if you had parsed the verb correctly, you would have noticed that God said in the present tense at that moment, even though Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had died hundreds of years earlier, that he was presently their God. 
they were alive. And so we, we see here, Jesus rightly divided the word of truth. And so often Christians can get, I don't know what the word is, just needing inspiration. And so they look to the Bible for comfort. Man, I'm, I'm, I'm sad. I'm going to read some Psalms or read some uh, inspirational materials on the scriptures. And they're looking to the Bible for inspiration. And I think that's wonderful. But when you really look at the Bible, it was really meant first to be looked at for information and look at it in detail on that information. And so, Timothy, you're, you're getting to the place where you're teaching these inspirational messages, good truth, but you're not teaching the hard truths. You're teaching the general details of grace and forgiveness and love and mercy. I, I grew up in a church where virtually every Sunday it was just be nice, be nice to each other, be nice to your dogs, and go home before you roast uh, overcooks. And it was, it was never really any truth that would upset anybody. I don't know if Timothy was doing that, but he wasn't giving meaty Bible studies, and he's saying you need to get back into the Word, not just for inspiration, but for information. And if you're teaching it, rightly dividing the Word of Truth, many of these doctrines you would be addressing in your teaching. Many of these doctrines would uh, have a hard time surviving very long in a church that is really teaching through the Bible. And uh, we, we, as Calvary Chapel, this is sort of our claim to fame. Out of Isaiah 28, line upon line, precept upon precept, we teach through the scriptures. Well, moving on in verse 16, but shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness. Now notice he didn't say here, shun the serious heresies. He says, stop letting these guys ramble on doctrines that really aren't essential to our faith, but it's also them adding two things that, that isn't clear in the Bible. When we get doctrine, it's something that's clear in the scripture, not just from one verse, but we take the totality of the entire Bible on that subject and look to stories that allude to it, verses in the Old Testament that talk about it, and the New Testament is not mentioned one or two places. And then on top of that, there, there are interesting things. I remember when I first started pastoring, it was a, a thing at that time, and, and some of them were Calvary, not pastors, but guys that had independent uh, ministries. They're, they're very interesting, intelligent guys. And they would be talking, elaborates, writing books and preaching several sermons on the lights in the sky are for signs and for seasons. And they would get out the horoscopes and whatever, and they would go back in time, and, and they would show the, the guy with the arrow on the very time, the very year when Christ died, the arrow was released and went into the scorpion in the sky and all these types of things. I don't know if they're true or not. They were sure interesting. And it got to the point, it was hard to have anybody interested in just good old Bible study because I wasn't showing maps of stars and <laughs> little dippers and all of those things. And then there was another season where people were looking at numerologies and they were looking at all the numbers and putting them together and saying if the one represents this letter and this and that. And, and there you would look at key verses in the Bible and they would look at the numbers and it would have a hidden message. The, when the scribes would write the Torah, they would always check. They had letters on each four corners of the, 
document they would finish to check them out, but then they would also have letters in the middle and the sides, and this is true. And so they said, hey, there's, there's a hidden message on every page of the Bible. And, uh, of course, some of those were modern news, you know, saying who was going to be elected the next president, you know, out of the book of Genesis, if you read it backwards and, you know, standing on your head and, you know, whatever it was. And, and of course, they would come out with these predictions from these hidden messages within the numerology of the Bible. Interesting stuff. Very convincing guys. But when those guys don't get elected, one, they predicted uh, the Israeli prime minister was going to get assassinated. Never happened. But what I discovered is that that's what was interesting to us. That's what we wanted to hear about. That's what we wanted to read about. That's what we want to talk about before church and after church. And it just wasn't growing us in Christ. And there comes a point where you have to say, no more of this. It's just increasing to more and more idle babbling. And it's leading not to godliness, not in a sense of being holy or not holy, but leading us into a deeper relationship with Christ. And of course, this is always going to be going on. This isn't something that happened 30 years ago or 20 years ago. It's going to always be happening. It circulates in and circulates out. It just comes and it goes like the wave of the sea, in and out, high tide, low tide. Paul tells the church of Ephesus this, the very church that Timothy is pastoring. When Paul was on his way there on the sands, leaving town, he got the elders together. Timothy would have been there. In Acts chapter 20, he's talking to these elders of Ephesus, and he says in verse 29 to 31 of Acts 20, For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. Paul would tell them, I taught you the whole counsel of God, but I would have to also tell you, equally, I warned you the whole time. I would teach a passage, and then I would teach you the heresies that are attacking this passage. And I told you, I, I noticed some guys amongst us here that are sort of prideful or or guys that aren't respectful to authority or whatever. And, and, and I think they're not going to try to pull this on me. But I think when I leave, I think they're going to show their true colors. And, you know, do you got a weak sheep? Do you got a wounded sheep or you got a wolf? He's saying, I, I think some of these guys that are sort of, you know, not really in the same spirit of us, walking in step with us. I think they're going to show their true colors and you're going to have to be ready to identify them and what they're doing and stop it. He told them that from inside the church and outside the church, this is what was going to happen. So Timothy wasn't unaware of this. Well, in verse 17, and their message will spread like cancer. He names the guys. This is unusual. Paul would often talk about heresies. There's only a couple of times I know that he mentioned them, and that was 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. He named them as heretics. He said their message will spread like cancer. Hyamenius and Philetus are of this sort. You say, but their message is popular. It's growing. It's dynamic. So is cancer. <laughs> it's growing. It's popular. It's spreading. So often we say, if it's successful, it must be true. If they got their own television program and they're millionaires, they have their own jet and their own ministry is, you know, that must be true. Well, then in that case, Jehovah's Witnesses are true. Mormons true. Uh, Muslims are true because they're big and they're growing and they're popular. No. Their popularity... Um, is not from God making them popular, and it's not from truth that the church needs to hear. They need to be called out for who they are, heretics. 
Notice back in chapter 1. Notice how Paul dealt with this. And again, it's right before 2 Timothy is 1 Timothy. And in chapter 1, and then at the very end, his final words in chapter 6. Let's look at chapter 1 first, in verses 18 to 20. This charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage a good warfare, having faith and a good conscience, what some, having rejected concerning the faith, have suffered shipwreck, among whom are Hymenius, we just read about him, but another fellow at this time, Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. And then he ends his letter with this final conclusion. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 20 and 21, O Timothy, guard what I've committed to your trust, avoiding profane and idle babblings and contradictions of which is falsely called knowledge, but professing that some have strayed concerning the faith, grace be with you, amen. The final exhortation is stop these very eloquent speakers, very intellectual guys maybe, very guys who know the Bible very, very, very well. Let's not forget Satan knows the Bible very, very well. He had the gall to quote it to Jesus, the very word of God himself. So again here, Timothy was up against it. He was having a difficult time, probably not getting the support he really needed from his elders as he was trying to pastor there in Ephesus. All of those that had been his support systems were with Paul, are out doing other apostolic and missionary journeys. And, and Timothy is finding himself um, equally matched with the amount of people and popular, intellectual, charismatic leaders. And Paul is telling Timothy, you can beat them because you got the truth. Well, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 18, who having strayed, going back to, to verse 17, naming these guys, Hyamedes, we read him in 1 Timothy, but now another guy, Philetus, are of this sort, who have strayed concerning the truth. Paul said in 1 Timothy, they suffered shipwreck in regards to their faith, saying that the resurrection is already past and they overthrow the faith of some. Now, I don't know what doctrine this is. We, we have no knowledge. It's not something that's in modern church history in the last 300 years. Of course, we have people debating on the resurrection of Christ. Was it a literal bodily resurrection of Christ? Or was it a spiritual resurrection of Christ? We as conservative, fundamental, I hate using these words because they, they have so many variations of how you can look at it, but they're the right words. If you want me to define them afterwards, I will. But we believe the Bible is the literal word of God if read in its, in its content um, and, and taken in the literary sense it was meant to be written. And, um, and so the Bible says that Jesus's body wasn't there the Bible tells of bodily resurrection. That's really all we need to know. But the problem is, is that means Jesus is eternally in that resurrected body. And there are those who just have a hard time with that. I think it says exactly that in Hebrews 2, that Jesus is like his brethren forever. It's not just he was in human flesh to help us and aid us, as it says in chapter 2 and chapter 4 of Hebrews. But it tells us as we get those heavenly scenes, he still's got those scars <laughs> in his body. And as Christ raised from the dead, so we shall raise exactly like him. Most of Christianity does not say that. They say it was just a spirit resurrection. I don't know what this was about. From what I can understand, it's more about their resurrection and that those who were going to be resurrected had already been resurrected. And if you hadn't already been resurrected, you missed out the first resurrection. And, and so they're, they're going, oh, the rapture already came or 
those, uh, however they started, I don't know, but uh, Jesus said, hey, there's going to be a resurrection. It already happened. And if you happen to be alive today, you missed it. That seems to be the, the concept, the idea. Um, again, there's many today attack, attacking the resurrection of Christ's body and of our body on many different levels. And it is one of the fundamentals that we hold that would include somebody as Christian or preclude somebody from being Christian. The virgin birth of Christ. You've got to realize if you believe in that, you're in a small number of Christianity. Most don't believe in that. You go, how can that be? I agree. I don't know how that can be. But I got my degree in a, in a, a Wesleyan Nazarene college, and, and believe me, they did not believe that. Uh, most of the professors didn't believe in a literal hell or a literal devil in that case. Um, they definitely didn't believe in a bodily resurrection of Christ. And so um, I'm not going to go into it tonight because I want to spend my time on the later verses here. But I put all the verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 there to read it. Paul goes into incredible detail, many, many verses, explaining um, how this can be, that Christ had a resurrected body and we will have a resurrected body exactly like him. He's the first fruits. He's the first one, the preeminent one that had that bodily resurrection, but ours will not be second to his. It will be exactly like his. And that's an important, important doctrine. Well, in verse 19 here, nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his and let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Now, if you know the scripture, you would know those are two references, not direct quotes, but references to two verses out of number 16. The first reference is out of number 16, verse 4 and 5. Let's read that. So when Moses heard it, he fell on his face and he spoke to Korah and all his company saying, tomorrow morning the Lord will show who is his and who is holy and will cause him to come near to him that one whom he chooses he will cause to come near to him. And then the second thing, let everyone who names the name of the Christ depart from iniquity. It reads this way in Numbers 16, 26. And he spoke to the congregation saying, Depart now from the tents of these wicked men. Touch nothing of theirs, lest you be consumed in all their sins. So Paul was alluding back to this story about Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. They happened to be nephews of Moses and Abraham. They were, to, they were priests and going to be a part of the priesthood at various levels. But they decided that Moses in particular, but Aaron equally as guilty, were lording it over them and that the promises of God, God taking them to a land flowing with milk and honey was an absolute lie. And, um, and that if we keep following them, they're going to lead us to the death out here in the wilderness. And we have been saying for quite some time, we need to turn around and go back to Egypt uh, they won't listen to us. They keep fighting us on this. And so they had a no-confidence vote uh, in Moses and in Aaron. And they accused them of getting rich off of them. Moses had no wealth. He said, I never took so much as a donkey from them. He said, Moses really in his heart just wants to be king. Moses wanted to be a forgotten shepherd out in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> he did not want to be a part of this. I mean, their, their accusations were just ludicrous. But he said to them, guys, let's just get together and talk. And they snubbed Moses. They said, who are you to tell us what to do at all? And they, they wouldn't even talk to him. And so Moses said, okay, fine. I am coming out to you tomorrow, but I'm not going to talk. He says in, in verse 4 and 5, 
I'm just going to stand there and let the Lord make it clear who he has chosen to lead this congregation. And then as he walked out, the Lord spoke and said, evidently to Moses' heart, I'm going to open up the earth and swallow these evil men alive. And um, Moses stood there and he warned everybody, I, I hope that you're really committed to uh, Korah and Dathan and Abram because if you stand with them, you're, you're going to suffer their punishment. And so people got away, but these men stood there with pride with their kids and their wives and their grandkids and, and just, you know, as a united front. But it tells us, reading the whole thing there of Numbers 16, verse 26 to 35, let's read this. And he spoke to the congregation, saying, Depart now from the tents of these wicked men. Touch nothing of theirs, lest you be consumed in all their sins. So they got away from around the tents of Korah, Dathan, and Abraham. And Dathan and Abraham came out and stood at the door of their tents with their wives, their sons, and their little ones. And Moses said, By this you shall know the Lord has sent me to you all these works. For I have not done them of my own will. If these men die naturally like all other men, and if they are visited by the common fate of all men, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord creates a new thing, and the earth opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them, and they go down alive into the pit, then you will understand that these men have rejected the Lord. Now it came to pass, as he finished speaking all these words, that the ground split apart under them, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up, and their households and all the men with Korah and with all their goods. So they and all those with them went down alive into the pit, and the earth closed over them, and they perished from among the assembly. Then all Israel who were around and them fled at their cry, for they said, Let's hear it swallow us up also. And the fire came out of the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering incense. So the priests that were at work doing the daily priestly uh, duties, they also, even though they were at work, uh, rather than being a part of this conversation, um, nevertheless, the Lord judged their hearts as in line with Korah and Dathan and Abram. And so Paul now is reminding Timothy back of this story. You may seem outmatched. You may be timid. You may not be an intellectual equal to these guys. They may even know the scripture better than you. You may have to tell them, I got to go research that. But either way, just like Moses, the most humble man on earth, and his older brother, both of these guys, at this point, well over 100, probably closer to 120, were no match for this multitude. Because you read that chapter 16, it says these guys went, they convinced all the elders, and then together they convinced all the people. There was nobody standing with Moses and Abram, not one. Millions of people standing against Moses and Aaron. And you, and you say, well, you know, Moses sort of brought it on himself. He's sort of a rascal. No. He was the humblest man on earth. Well, Moses did take a lot of money for his job. He didn't take a penny. Well, he did like the praise of the people. No, he didn't. It's ridiculous. But yet the people were persuaded the ridiculous. If anybody on earth should not have been questioned on these things, these accusations shouldn't have been brought. It should have been Moses. But yet the most ridiculous, and I'll tell you, I have discovered that to be the truth. When accusations are brought against pastors, it's not typically about some weak area of their life. It's usually the area of their life that they have the greatest integrity. Jesus was accused of being a glutton and a drunkard. And I've heard People say from the pulpit, well, that tells us Jesus probably really enjoyed eating and, and really enjoyed the wine. Well, in the same book, later on, they said, we know who Jesus is. He's possessed with the head demon. Was Jesus 
a little bit. Ah, Jesus overate a little bit. Ah, you know, that happens. Jesus drank probably a few too times too many, got a little tipsy. And, you know, he didn't let the big demon in him, but he had a little demon in him here and there. Do you understand how ridiculous this is? Jesus was tempted, but he never sinned, and gluttony is sin. Jesus drank what was given to him in those days. And if you want me, I can prove I don't think he ever drank any alcohol ever from the scriptures. I think he drank wine, but it wasn't alcoholic. And I can prove it. <laughs> if you ever want to hear the debate on that. But either way, he was never close to being tipsy. And Jesus, for certain, was not being empowered by Satan in possession of any kind. And you say, well, these are the most ridiculous things. Who could ever believe that about Jesus? It wasn't a couple people saying, crucify him, crucify him, was it? Yeah, it's, it's nuts, guys. It's nuts. But here's what I'm trying to say. Timothy, you're in a position, position that is pretty normal for God's man. Jeremiah was alone. <laughs> Daniel was alone. Uh, you can keep right right on going down the list. And of course, when we get to chapter four, Paul's going to say, everybody's forsaken me. And when I stood before Nero, I was alone. And I don't think Paul felt outmatched because the Lord was with him. And God can open up the earth and suck these guys down and bring fire to heaven and consume them. Probably won't. That's not God's typical way of doing things. But He'll definitely be supporting Timothy and, and against them, whether he sees it to that degree or not. We're finishing up here tonight in verse 20 and 22, and I don't know if you can hear me more than the rain. I can't hear me more than the rain. I feel like I'm screaming. Turn, turn, the, turn everything up, man. Act like we're at a rock concert. Just blast it. In verse 20 here, but in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honor and some for dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel for honor. Notice this next word, sanctified, useful for the master, prepared for every good work. Flee also youthful lust, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with, with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. What an important topic here, sanctification. When we say, Jesus, come in and be the Lord of my life, at the moment you believe in your heart, whether you get the words out or not, believe in your heart, Jesus is Lord and God has raised him from the dead, you are justified, just as if you've never sinned. You were made righteous, equal to Jesus' righteousness. You have been redeemed. You're out of the bondage of Satan and of hell and eternal damnation into the kingdom of the son of his love. So here we are now. All of that is true about me. But is it true you seeing that in me? Do you see the righteousness of Christ coming out of my life? Do you see the fact that I've been saved from this sinful world and I'm translated into the son of his love? Do you see this holiness as Christ is holy in me? Probably not. The day you get saved, probably almost not at all. As a matter of fact, people often get saved, they're born again and they're riding the high wave. They come down to reality very quick when they get home. The same temptations, the same frustrations, the same anger and bitterness and whatever was causing their life to be miserable is still there. They don't get on the internet and go, wow, I don't owe anybody anymore. My house was paid off. My, <laughs> You're still in debt, right? You still got the same body, the same family, the same car, the same job. But now you have the ability to be a new person in that the word sanctification is, is understood to be a process that you see it more and more in my hands, in my feet, in my mouth, in my thinking, in my life, in my words. 
all of a sudden I'm discovering the Holy Spirit causing to be causing me to be loving when I was usually be hateful. Not perfect, man. I can see that old sinful man just like I did before I got saved sometimes. It's rather discouraging, and I hate it. But in time, we should be able to eventually say, as Paul said, you can follow me as I follow Christ. If you follow me and my traditions of how I follow Christ, in other words, take my convictions, not legalistically, but take my convictions and my manner of life as we live in this Roman inside, this Roman Empire, and you adopt the attitudes as I'm living in this wicked Roman Empire, and, and you follow my example, you'll find it will bring the peace of Jesus upon your life. I'm not there. Don't follow me as I follow Christ, but do follow my wife as she follows Christ. It really is a true thing. Well, I, we need to look at a couple of passages to get this and to understand this. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1 through 4, Paul tells this to the Thessalonican church. Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more, just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Now listen to verse 3 of 1 Thessalonians 4. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and in honor. So guys, it's an individual plan. <laughs> it's up to you. Now, I, I think Christians often don't get sanctified because they, they paint it with a big wide brush. I'm not sinning, so I'm living sanctified. No. When you look at sanctification as we did in 2 Timothy, you hear me, guys? You're squinting. Turn, that, turn the speakers up, man. Come on. As a... Uh, as we see in 2 Timothy, he doesn't say in God's house there's sinful vessels and unsinful vessels. What does he say? There's honorable vessels and dishonorable vessels. Just like Paul said in Hebrews 12, let us go of all the weights as well as sins. And so I think when we're first Christians, we do describe our Christianity as doing well because we're not doing the big sins anymore. We're not doing those things that are so blatantly non-Christian anymore. And I find myself patting myself on the back, but I'm also wondering why all my friends are so wondering whether I'm really saved or not. Because they really don't see the honorable Christian life ha happening. They see me walking, not with big sins, but some pretty carnal weights that are keeping me from shining my light as Jesus would have me to do. Now, when I read passages like 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 4, I feel the weight. It's like, you, keep yourself sanctified. <laughs> I'm trying, I'm so weak. <laughs> Lord, I believe all my unbelief. Right? You need to know how your body functions and you have calculated what kind of things tempt you and what kind of things will weaken you and what kind of things will keep you sinning and get them out of your life. Man, somebody should have told me that. That's so simple. I mean, we know this, right? But we find like Paul, the things I don't want to do, I do. Things I do want to do, I don't do. I, I, I man. This is why I like 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. So Paul tells us in chapter 4, guys, it's on you. This is the will of God. It's up to you whether you're going to be sanctified or not. But now in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 23 to 24, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit, 
soul, body, be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. One of my favorite verses, verse 24. He who calls you is faithful, who what? Who will also do it. Oh, I don't feel the burden anymore. Man, I read chapter four and I'm like, oh boy. <laughs> this, is, this is a job that I think is too big for this weak, carnal human. But then I read chapter five and God says, as you are endeavoring to do that, I'm going to give you all the power. A matter of fact, I really don't need any of your power. In that verse 23, 1 Thessalonians 5, 23, he says, may the God of peace himself, it's emphatic. It actually reads in the Greek, by himself with nobody's aid or help. And then he will sanctify you how? Completely, entirely. So some people say, well, God's going to get me there 50%, but the next 50% is up to me. No. The very first step of sanctification is the Lord and his grace, and the last step is the Lord and his grace. But what do we discover? An important thing. Here's a quote. Quote, without Jesus, we can't. But without us, he won't. When I first heard that quote, I hated it. But then I, I realized it's the absolute truth. Jesus is saying it needs to come from within your will, your soul, your desire to say, Lord, I don't want to be a vessel of dishonor. I want to be a vessel of honor. Lord, I don't want to be in the, in the house going to heaven, but yet on earth, I'm, I'm really not that fruitful. I'm not that really that useful to you. Lord, I, however long I have to live, and guys, it may be a week, right? Maybe tonight, your last night. I don't know, this storm going on. But whatever it is, God, I want to wake up tomorrow, take a day at a time, and I want to say, Lord, I give myself unto sanctification. I'm not laying the groundworks, the dead old works of salvation, baptisms, and am I right with God? Am I really saved or not saved? I'm, I'm stopping that nonsense. I am saved. I believe in you. Not by my works. It's a gift from God. I'm saved. But this issue of sanctification, daily, we have to do what? Deny ourselves, take up the cross, and follow Jesus. So daily, God, I give myself unto sanctification. Now, can I do it? No. I can't. First little tiny temptation comes up. I'm dead. Without God's grace, I'm dead. If I say, muster your will, Brian, be strong. You know the Bible so well. You've been going to church for decades. Use all that good Christian aura to fight that temptation. It's a tiny one. <laughs> We're going down, right? We know it's got to be God's grace because our flesh is utterly weak. Paul says, in my flesh, there is no good thing. Nothing that helps me to be more spiritual, he says in Romans 7. But yet, the Spirit of God lives in me, and I can do all things to Christ who strengthens me. Listen to this verse, probably one of the top favorite verses of the Bible as well. Hebrews 10, verse 14. By the one offering, he, Jesus, has perfected forever, what? Those who are being sanctified. When was our sanctification complete? On the cross. On the cross, Jesus didn't just give us righteousness, redemption, salvation. He also gave us entire sanctification. When we're out of these bodies, we're sanctified. But it is God's joy, it is our glory 
to be a part of that process. But once we're out of this body, we're entirely sanctified, and, and there's no more being a part of that process, right? We get in our new bodies in heaven. There's no devil to tempt us. There's no sinful flesh. We have a brand new flesh that's righteous flesh. Um, there's going to be no darkness, sin, carnalness whatsoever for eternity. There's right now, we have the joy of being in the battle, right? I was watching a, a movie a while back and some guys were going to go to the war and they were all excited and they went to boot camp and, you know, they're going to do it and World War II ended. And they were just devastated. <laughs> they were all geared up and couldn't be a part of the war. I, I, can, I could get that. I really could. Well, guys, we're going to be out of the war very soon. We're going to be out of these bodies. We will not have a temptation to ever fight the good fight again. We'll never have a chance to be tempted and to overcome that temptation. We'll never have a chance again to be in these sinful bodies and say, even though all is against me, Lord, I want to live sanctified. I want to be an honorable vessel. And I want to get through this day not bearing 20-fold or 30-fold, but 100%, everything you wanted to do, every word you wanted to speak, I was a holy vessel, sanctified, set apart for your use. We can only do this now. And you know our life is just a vapor, right? I mean, it's just a tiny little, you go out and see somebody's tombstone, says their name, the day they were born, a little dash, and the day they died. That's how long your life is, that little dash. And it's running out. I mean, if you have 10, 10 more years to live, that's what, 3,665 days? You got 20 years, double it. You got 50 years. Let me do that real quick. 18,250 days. 18, that's it. 50 years of life. 70 years of life is 25,550 days. 25,000 days makes up a 70-year-old life. And then you say, you know, wipe out your childhood. <laughs> and then you go through those years where you were struggling, get rid of those years. Then you get those years where you were just so focused on job and work and education and family, and you didn't really, weren't really living that, that life to pursue the things of God and a lot of wasted time, a lot of dumb weekends, a lot of, and you start cutting away weddings, funerals, quinceaneras, bar mitzvahs. I don't know what you guys are doing. You know, you got all these celebrations and holidays. You get rid of all those and you start, chunk, you know, cutting them down. Probably the average American. <laughs> and then, of course, you're sleeping, going to the bathroom, brushing your teeth. All of those things, fixing food and eating. You start taking out those hours. How many hours do we really have in a lifetime to just set ourselves apart and say, God, use me? I, I think it's very few, don't you? And I don't think if we don't focus and target on, on understanding that, I think we won't be as fruitful as God had intended. So, if he has made you righteous, he has also made you sanctified. But it's our joy and crown, our glory, if we do it now while we're in sinful bodies and fight the good fight, win the fight, run the race without any weights, and give ourselves daily as an honorable vessel. In 1 Corinthians 1, verse 29 to 31, he says that all of this has been done for the weak. All of us are saved because we're the weak, we're the despised. Very few amongst us that are honorable uh, in the secular world. God's chosen the base things to be his church. And he says why, in verse 29 of 1 Corinthians 1, that no flesh of glory in his presence, but of him, by his doing, because of Christ, you are in Christ Jesus who became for us, Jesus on the cross. What else did the cross do for us? He became for us wisdom. You ever think about that? Well, I'm not that smart. You don't have to be. The word of God makes wise the simple. God is your wisdom. 
He'll give you wisdom. He's already did it on the cross. Also, he did for us, already past tense. He became for us, past tense, the righteousness. Look at the next word, sanctification. Look at the next word, redemption. That it's written, let him who glories, glory in the Lord. So how did we get going in Christianity? We know this, Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith, not of yourself. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And you say, why are you sharing that? Because look at the next verse, Colossians 2, 6. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord. How did you receive Christ Jesus? Read back up to Ephesians 2. By grace, through faith in that grace as a gift from God. How are we going to walk? Notice in Colossians 2, 6. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, what? So walk in him. Remember John 1? It says, of his fullness we've all received. The Father has given us the Son, and in his fullness we've all received. Grace, what? Upon grace, or grace to grace. In Romans 1, Paul says, the righteous are declared righteous from faith, what? To faith. It starts in faith. The second step is in faith. The third one, it's always in faith. How do we continue to walk in our salvation as we received it by grace. How are we going to experience the wisdom of God, his sanctification? Ultimately, we're going to be standing before him righteous by receiving it as a grace. In Titus 2, last verse here tonight, verse 11 to 14. For by grace, for by the grace of God that brings salvation. Do you hear this? The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, godly in this present age. What did the grace of God do? It brought us salvation, but that grace of God from the cross is also the same grace that saved us, brought us salvation. That same grace is now trying to teach us to be sanctified. That same grace is directing us to deny ungodliness, worldly lust, live soberly, righteously, godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people. Notice, zealous for good works. Do you see this? It's exactly what Paul talked about here in verse 20 to 22. In a great house, there's trash cans and there's vases, right? <laughs> there's the litter box <laughs> and then there's the glass you use for the finest wine. Some for honor, some for dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself, he participates with God in this sanctification. He'll be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful for the master, prepared for every good work. Lord, thank you for your word tonight. Just continue to put it deeper and deeper and deeper into our souls. We don't want to just get a ticket to heaven. We don't just want to ride the coats of the church and, and skewed on in with little reward, with little godliness in our life, with, with little fruit to our account. Lord, we don't want that. We want to have said all, done all, been all, shined all, been that light, that salt, been the everything you want us to be. Lord, we thank you that by yourself, you're going to sanctify us entirely. Faithful is you called us, we will bring it to pass. Through the one sacrifice you perfected forever, those you're now sanctifying. Thank you, Lord. But we also hear the cry of your spirit who lives in us crying out, Abba, Father, be holy, for I am holy. We hear your spirit drawing us. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you learn and do with a strong will and focus to be sanctified. We just yield ourselves to you now, Lord. Rearrange our thoughts rearrange our life, 
Let us be the people of God after your own heart who do all your will. Let us walk in a manner worthy of you, pleasing you in every respect, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of you. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. God bless you.